0: Um, well, let's pray. Let's uh, let's bow our heads before the Lord. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to bless our time because we can't do this without Him. So, Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would grant us this morning a spirit of humility. Now, to receive your words with wisdom and understanding, so that we might conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of Christ, who emptied Himself so that we may know the love and the fullness of God, Lord. Um, We are not a professional operation here, as you have just witnessed, Um, and so we we come to you humbly. We pray that you would illuminate our hearts as we um, open your word and we seek to obey it. So, uh, Lord, move so in us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just to do a little bit of review, we're in our fourth week of redefining marriage. I have a lot of regret because I love that sign, and... We're kind of done now, so I, we would do a little auction afterwards to see who gets to buy it and hang it up in their garage, I think. I Probably not. Um, but in week one, we, uh, we talked a little bit about the Reformation. In fact, today is known as Reformation Sunday. I'm not going to get into a, a big thing about Reformation Sunday. Um, but one of the big lines that came out of the Reformation was this. It was that the church is reformed and always reforming itself according to God's word. And so we sort of use that to apply to our marriages by saying, uh, Um, We need to always be redefining our marriages according to God's word. And and what we see at the heart of redefining, as we've kind of seen all the way through as we've stepped through this, is a re-self-denying. So that's one of the things that we've looked at that's been kind of a theme and a thread through the series, which is this re-self-denying, which is, finding our greatest joy by pursuing the joy of another. And we do that by denying ourselves, our own wants, our own desires, and pursuing that in the other person. Um, And one of the other things that we talked about was the idea that a marriage series really shouldn't be about marriage per se. Like we don't want to start at marriage because we hit a ceiling really quickly if we just start with marriage in and of itself. But we want it to actually be about our marriage to Christ first and foremost. Christ who submitted to God and Laid down his life for the joy that was set before him. And then we also kind of brought this, you know, really ridiculous analogy to the table in the first week that talked about duct taping, right? Jesus didn't duct tape our condition. That's not what he did. He didn't find a way around what was really going on in the depths of our hearts and our depravity, but he but he died for us. He didn't duct tape, he died for us in our condition. Out of love for God and for us. And, and what we established very early on with that, this is foundational. That's the foundational principle for a flourishing marriage is that we sacrifice for one another. And then we got into weeks two and three and uh, we learned that God has designed roles of equal worth and dignity for husbands and wives that he actually ordered at the time of creation. Remember, we talked about that. So with Christ as our motivation now, a wife can submit to her husband and we don't gotta go, ah, the word, you know, but a wife can actually submit to her husband. A husband can love His wife, he can lay down his life for his wife. But our takeoff into this must begin by reorienting ourselves to God first so that our love and submission to our spouses, it actually flows from a desire to love and submit to God before all other things. So it has to be rightly ordered so that these things that we are endeavoring and pursuing are flowing from the right source. Um, Tim Keller says, to have a marriage that sings requires a spirit-created ability to serve and to take yourself out of the center. So we understand, too, that in and of ourselves, we don't have the power to do this. It has to be something that the Spirit is working through us. So three things need to be at work um, as we continue to redefine our marriages. One, a focus on God. Two, a focus off of ourselves. And three, a focus on serving the other. So this leads us to Week four, our final week, what do we need now in order to apply this self-denying love to one another? Here's the big answer that I'm going to pray and we're just going to go eat. It's called wisdom. You know, I mean, I got to preach a little bit longer than that, but that's, that's the answer for us today. What we need in order to apply this self-denying love is wisdom. And here's what's interesting when we start talking about wisdom. We're going to flesh it out. We're going to unpack what the word means and how it's applied to us from the book of James. But most of us have been given a measure of wisdom, right? Most of us have been given a measure of practical wisdom uh, in our lives that we've learned to apply really to more mundane areas. You know, I remember when we moved uh, to Ohio going on eight years and we were confronted with this substance called ice. Um, and, and previously we had only been we'd only been uh, used to ice in the form of these little cubes that we'd put in our drinks you know to to cool them off so I remember and I know that's going to be really funny to some of you guys what I'm about to say um, but I remember the first couple times I walked out the door and there was ice on the ground and I, I didn't really walk anywhere I, I hit the, I hit the ground and I slid I fell down my tailbone you know the whole thing and here's the thing like I didn't learn the next day that the ice didn't go anywhere and I didn't learn that the next week the ice didn't go anywhere. Where just because there hadn't been sunshine for the last seven days. So I kept repeatedly stepping off this step and sliding until finally I learned that I didn't want to die anymore. So I just stopped going outside for the next four months, which is what I do starting in November. I'm kidding. But like practical wisdom drove me to the place of understanding that, dude, there is ice on the ground and you need to... St- Stop stepping so voraciously out there to try to get to your car, right? You guys are looking at me like I've lost my mind because I have, because I have lost my mind because of the ice. But this is what I'm trying to tell you. There's some practical wisdom that I learned from that. So although many of us have a practical wisdom, what tends to lack in most of us is, is a spiritual wisdom, a spiritual that leads to relational wisdom that grounds our love in godliness over simply good intentions, okay? Because without wisdom, we, we can love God while still going on a rampage of misguided and self-directed ways of trying to live it out. So today we're going to see what James, who is known as the brother of Jesus, that's traditionally what we know about the book that he wrote. This was the brother of Jesus writing to uh, the churches here. And what he has to say about the kind of wisdom we need in order to apply the love God has given to us in Christ. And I should also mention before we start that this was, this was not, not a passage written specifically for husbands and wives and marriages. But, but it can and should be applied to them as well as all relationships. So this, this goes much wider than even just marriages. So if you've turned to James 3, let's go to verse 13. And I'm going to read and it says this. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable gentle open to reason full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace so this is God's word for us today so we're going to unpack uh, we're going to unpack four things here number 1 the call to wisdom, the call for wisdom that we see right in the beginning of these passages. Secondly, we're going to pack the two kinds of wisdom that James brings to the table and makes us aware of. Three, we're going to talk about what the fruit is when we follow a godly wisdom, when we pursue a godly wisdom. And then fourth, we are going to talk about what it means to get wisdom, to go after this kind of wisdom. So the beginning, our first point is the call for wisdom. James begins with an invitation here to wisdom by calling out to those who are wise and understanding. It's like he's saying, dude, show me what you got. Who is wise and understanding among you? It's like he's, he's sort of throwing it out there. He's sort of trying to gather people in. Is this you? Well, let's see what you got from the life that you live. It's similar to the invitation and call that we actually find in the book of, of Proverbs, which is why James is sometimes referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. In Proverbs 1, uh, 20 through 23, we read this. Wisdom cries aloud in the street, it says. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words Known to you. So, somewhere right now in the world, someone is crying out at the top of their lungs, but you can't hear it unless you go to the nursery right now, right? For the Christian, it's the voice of the Holy Spirit that is offering to make the wisdom of God known to you if you will only listen to his words and learn how to live from them. This is the call from James to the church. And so we want to talk about what wisdom is then, if he's calling for the wise and the understanding to sort of come forth and live in the conduct and the meekness of wisdom. What is wisdom? then? Well, Let's let's break that down. Let's crack that open a little bit because wisdom has to be a little bit more than sort of that experience we have, you know, after having a good meal at Basil and we crack open that stale fortune cookie and read the paper, right? Like wisdom has to be a little bit deeper. It has to be a little richer for us when we're talking about God's word, right? Well, this is what wisdom is. I'm gonna give you three definitions of it that sort of progressively sort of uh, kind of lead us into it. The first one is this. Wisdom is rightly applying God's word to every area of your life. Secondly, it's this. Another way of saying it is it's doing what you know to be true from the truth you know about God given to you in his word. So those are two working definitions that we have of wisdom. Um, And you might say, great, but but where do do we begin then with that? Where do we begin with that application? Well, I'm glad you asked because Proverbs 9.10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight, And then you say, well, great, then what do we mean by the fear of the Lord? If I have to begin with wisdom, with a fear of the Lord, then what do we mean by fear of the Lord? Because the things I'm fearful about, I don't tend to be drawn to. I tend to run from. So when Big M and I, man, when we are taking our hikes and we run across one of those snakes, you know, the creatures that deceived our parents, like I tend to get a little scared. I tend to run the, I tend to jump in her arms. I'm not going to lie to you, you know. That's why she's building things up a little bit. You know what I mean? Because I get, a little, I get a little fearful. That's what I do. I run from things that are fearful. Now, John Piper has a really great description of wisdom when he says it's this, in terms of how we're supposed to understand what fearing the Lord means. He says, wisdom is hearing and doing God's word. God's word is a divine prescription for how to be finally cured of all unhappiness, He says, Then he goes on to say, wisdom is the practical knowledge of how to attain that happiness. Therefore, wisdom is hearing and doing the word of God. But the only people who will do this are the people who are humbly relying on God for help. And here's the part. And who fear to seek happiness anywhere but in him. Therefore, the fear of the Lord is the beginning and spring of all true wisdom. So. With with those three kind of working definitions that we just read, wisdom is fearing to do anything that doesn't please God for the sake of pleasing ourselves. James is saying, look, if this is you, if this is somebody that is pursuing this type of wisdom and understanding that I'm talking about, I need you to live it out. I need you to conduct yourself with meekness or another word for meekness is humility because this is the very spirit of someone who is wisely applying God's word to every area of their lives. So a humble person is someone acting in accordance with wisdom. So a humble person and a wise person, they're gonna be like this. They're kind of one in the same. You're not gonna see like an arrogant wise person, right? Humility and wisdom go hand-in-hand. It's the expectation of one who is actually a follower of Jesus, which is why you and I are so shocked when we hear of a pastor or a leader who has to step down due to not living wisely, not living in wisdom, not living in understanding, but needs to step down because there's been a measure of abuse of leadership or lying or cheating or immorality that has surfaced in in their ministry. And the reason why that shocks us is because we expect their life to be conducted in the meekness of wisdom. There's something in our leaders and in our pastors, in their character, that we expect to be humble and to leading in this kind of conduct that James is telling us about. The ironic thing about those who are wise and understanding is that one of the character traits is that they don't think of themselves as being wise and understanding. They they live it. They're not necessarily loud about it, right? So that's some of the character traits of what James is calling out for this call to wisdom, for this call to those who are wise and understanding. In verse 14, he issues a warning and says, hey, if this is not you, don't be boastful. Don't, be, don't brag about it. Don't be prideful about being something you're not. In other words, don't try to fool yourself or others into believing you're wise and understanding if your life doesn't follow this pattern of humility. Now, some of you are faking it. Some of you are faking it in your marriages. Okay, let's get back to our topic at hand. Some of you fake it in your marriages. And the show that you put on for the rest of your church family and community has also fooled you into thinking all is well. So you think, man, I'm faking them and I'm kind of faking me too because I put on such a great show for them. It must mean I'm in a place that clearly I am not according to what James is laying out for us right now. That's not conducting yourself in the meekness of wisdom, which means there is a lack of wisdom in your life that we're getting ready to unpack here in one second. It's kind of like the mold in your walls. You know, when you get a house inspection, they discover mold in your wall. That mold has been there. Like for whatever reason, you just didn't discover it because you didn't get behind those walls, but they're moldy. And they're poisoning you. You just didn't know it. But if you just take one layer off, it's there. And something needs to be done about it. So the meekness of wisdom is this. It's increasing a self-knowledge about the fact that you need wisdom. That's the meekness of wisdom. James points out that when we live in denial of this truth, the fruit of that the eventual fruit of that will be bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, which he points out in verse uh, 14. And this is what I love about James is that he just says what it is, and it's a little horrifying as we get into this because we want to break down then what exactly does James mean by jealousy and selfish ambition? Well, this is what it means when he talks about these things. It's a person who reacts pridefully when his or her ideas are challenged. That's what he means by jealousy and selfish ambition. And again, let me remind you guys, this was not a passage written specifically for, for marriages. But it's interesting how well this applies when you consider what's really going on at the heart of the conflict that you have in your marriage. What is it? Well, it's that your ideas, your agenda, your wants, your desires your plans, and your comforts are being challenged by the one you believe is supposed to be the root supplier of them. And I ain't talking about Jesus, but your spouse, okay? That's what's going on when we talk about this idea of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So what James does now is he contrasts the two kinds of wisdom for us here and, and interestingly, and, and what I think is helpful, but also a little sharp for us, is he doesn't give us any gray area, right? He doesn't give us any gray area. And you know what's wrong with that? And what's right about that is we love to live in the gray area. We love to think, you know, I know I'm not all that, but I'm not all that. I mean, I know I'm not doing so great in this area, but you know, you know, we, you know each other to death. We don't do like we know we should. We don't live in the wisdom that we should because we are satisfied with living in a place of mediocrity that allows us to not have to commit to something that's actually going to provide flourishing through a measure of sanctifying work, right? So James contrasts the two wisdoms and what the results are of them. The first one you look down at verse 15 and 16 is what I call the wisdom from below. Just in time for Halloween and Stranger Things too, Right here, this is it. It's a wisdom that James describes as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. James, why don't you just say what you really mean? You know what I mean? Earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Well, what do we mean by those three words? Well, here's what we mean by earthly. We mean... It's a wisdom that is a narrow perspective that fails to consider God's will. That would be an earthly wisdom. And unspiritualism would be where our human feelings and our human reasoning reign supreme in our lives. And then a demonic wisdom is one that is an enemy to everything that we know about the heart of God and finds its nature rather in pride and in disobedience. And then James says, you know what the result of this wisdom from below is? He says, it's disorder and every vile practice. Well, what the heck? I mean, what is disorder and every vile practice? Well, by disorder, what James is saying is a restless and unsettled state. That's the result of this kind of earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. And every vile practice means all the ways of living that just become more corrupted as they're not dealt with and they actually produce harm to ourselves and others. This is the result of applying worldly wisdom to our relationships, to our marriage, and to every area of our life. This is what I like to call an unattended to wisdom and unattended to wisdom. What do you think about when you think about disorder? I always think about, I always think about the old days. My, you know, when my kid was around nine or ten years old, or whatever, sixteen, and she like, if you walked into her bedroom, it was like, oh my gosh, like what happened here? You know, like what all of you experience like every day right now? You know, something close to that, but it was a very unsettled, unkept state of disorder. Right? I mean, so again, you know. We're all grown-ups here. I don't have to keep defining disorder. We know what it means. And when I would walk into Bethy's room, it would be like, oh my gosh, like I've never seen anything like this in my life. And it felt very unsettling, right? And the thing that we wanted to do was to have her settle it and have her order it. What do we think about when we think of every vile practice? I, I remember I had all these cousins that used to buy these old cars, and they would put them into the side of their house, and they would, you know, have all of these intentions of fixing them up because they're these awesome mechanics, and like 10 years later, those cars are still sitting there, right? And all they're doing is they're getting more rusty. They're getting more corrupted. They're less like even the bad condition they were in when they first arrived at the house. So this is what an earthly wisdom from below, this is what it eventually produces, disorder and every vile practice. If you go back to James 1, verse 21, James kind of fleshes it out a little more intricately. And he says, put it away from me. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So we just get sort of this grotesque view of what happens when we apply an earthly and unspiritual and a demonic wisdom to our lives. And then James contrasts it with verse 17, which he calls wisdom from above, which he says is pure He says it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy, it's impartial and sincere. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by these attributes? Let's unpack these for one second. What do we mean when we say pure? What's what's a wisdom from above that's pure? It means that your motivations are in line with God's desires. That's what he means by somebody who has A pure wisdom from above who's applying that to their lives. And when he says peaceable, he means having a peace, a a presence and a posture of peace with your spouse or with a loved one or with a friend. This is a relationship where there is not a measure of attacking or accusing or button pushing or being on the defensive. Whereas you're in a relationship instead that is always trying to create Peace Again, not by never confronting things that are wrong, but you have a posture that goes into everything as, as one who is peaceable. And then he says, gentle, which is dealing softly with one another, tenderhearted, pausing to listen attentively, I mean, I don't know about you, but, but sometimes that's really lacking when, when we look at the state of some marriages. It's just that soft tenderness that a couple once had with uh, one another that has sort of dissipated. Open to reason means you consider the ideas and opinions of the other person. You receive them as being worthy and, value, and valuable. You, know, you don't just push them off to the side, but you're open to learning what they have to say about what's going on in your lives. Full of mercy We know mercy by the mercy that God gave us in Christ. It's not giving them what they deserve, but they do dumb things, Martin. I know. I mean, not my wife, but I know, right? But you know what's funny? Like Christ died for that dumbness, all right? Christ died for our depravity for which that dumbness comes out of. We're just keeping it real right now. Talking about dumbness on Sunday morning impartial and sincere are are you being fair with one another do you come to the table in fairness do you do you try to do you try to not be a manipulative person do you try to act in a way that displays genuine love for the other person. So when James is talking about wisdom from above, he's contrasting it with wisdom from below. And here are the decisively different fruits that come out of each. And then ultimately, he says, a harvest of righteousness will be sown in peace by those who make peace. In case you didn't know, marriage is sanctification. Relationships are sanctification. What is what is sanctification? It's this: it's your head, heart, and hands conformed to the righteousness of Jesus. Here's my question: Do you have a righteousness that your spouse or friend is able to harvest? Is there something in you that is harvestable? Is there a righteousness that your spouse or your friend is able to benefit from? You have to consider that question. One of the telltale signs of wisdom from above is that in place of disorder and vile practices, there will be a peace, it says. So if I were to poll all of you today, man, none of you would be opposed to that. In fact, at the very minimum, if I just said, hey, what's, what, if I could just offer you one thing right now in your marriage, what would it be? For most of you, generally speaking, don't send me an email when I don't list your, your one thing. Generally speaking... Um, you would say, yeah, I would love some peace. If we had peace, we wouldn't have to agree on everything. We wouldn't have to like all the same things. But if there was a peaceful companionship between the two of us, that would be so lovely. That's what some of you and many of you would say. And you know what? It's available. What James is driving at here is that this is available when the right kind of wisdom is being applied in your life and in your relationships. The problem is that we seek it through selfishness rather than through self-denial. Do you guys hear what I'm saying with that? We, we seek it through selfishness rather than self-denial. Wisdom and understanding provides the spirit of humility in which peaceful living and giving is possible. I mean, listen, a marriage that has two sinners, and that is all marriages, that has two sinners pursuing a greater desire for God and then living that out in humility toward one another will be a marriage steeped in righteousness and bubbling over with peace because wisdom and understanding are the grounds for peaceful living. That's what James is communicating to us right now. So what do we do? How do we get this? How do we acquire this, right? We just gave you a bunch of information about what wisdom is, the kinds of wisdom that are going to exist in our lives with, again, not a lot of gray area. How do we get wisdom? Proverbs chapter 4, 7 through 8 says this, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. You know, I don't know how to break it down any more simply than that for you. Um, You know, for those of you who think the Bible is sometimes complicated, Proverbs 4, 7 through 8, not complicated. The beginning of wisdom is this, get it. Get wisdom. And then it says this, whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly. In other words, everything we're talking about this morning, don't just brush it off. Don't brush it off. Don't go home today like looking in a mirror, forgetting what you looked like. Prize it highly. She will exalt you, it says, She will honor you if you embrace her. Well, okay then. How do we get godly wisdom? Well, here's three things. We ask, we search, and we seek it from our church body. So the first thing is we need to ask for it. And by asking for it, what I'm really talking about is prayer. We need to ask for wisdom. James 1.5 says this. Again, James, real simple guy. If any of you lacks wisdom, wait for it. Let him ask God. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So again, what what this allows us to, to do is to go back to what we fundamentally believe about God. Because most Christians, and you need to check this in your heart, okay? Because you might immediately say, no way, that's not me. Check it. Most Christians still believe that God helps those who help themselves. We default to that. That's sin. That's the first sin. That's all that is. So there's no way that we don't default to that because that's one of the roots of our sin. But here we see the dummy's guide to petitioning God, which is, if you lack, ask. And he will give generously because Wisdom would fall under the God-approved list of gifts he wants to lavish on you. You guys hearing me with that? So that's one of those things where we ask God, and he's like, well, yeah, right? I mean, that, I, I want to give that to you. How many of you guys have seen Christmas Story? Susan Grant, Okay. Um, if you haven't, um, this December, uh, you know, you can see it on loop for 24 hours. I think starting on Christmas Eve, that just sounded like a commercial. I don't I don't work for uh, Netflix or anything. Um, but this is what it is. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's a little bit of a spoiler alert. It is 30 years old, so I don't feel bad about this. Um, it's, it's a story about a kid named Ralphie who wants a Red Ryder BB gun for Christmas. And the dude literally makes bad decision after bad decision trying to convince Santa and his parents that this is all he wants. Turns out, in the end... His dad had always planned on buying it for him. All he needed to do was ask and believe and trust. Yeah, don't take it too far. The analogy just breaks down horribly. But right there, you can stop right there with it, right? And then we go to John 15:16, and this is what it tells us. Jesus is speaking. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I mean, do we understand that God is going to get the very thing we ask for that he has created for our sanctification and the bearing of our fruit when we ask for it? Is he not going to give us the very thing that we need to bear the fruit that he has foundationally assigned to us before the foundation of the world? The answer is yes, but we have to ask. We have to be a church that prays. We have to be a church that goes before the Lord every day and says, Lord, I don't got this. I need wisdom. I need discernment. Even the things I think I know, that's foolishness. That's arrogance. That's not conducting myself in the meekness of wisdom. So we ask. Two, we search. Another way of searching is we open God's word. If you ever want to know what God is speaking to you in the moment, open the Bible and read. That's God's voice and word to us. Nothing outside of that. That's why we never use language here like, well, God told me. "That God told me to tell you this, Jeff Stewart. No. If you ever hear anybody say that to you, rebuke them. And say, no, unless it's a photocopy of what I read in here, God did not tell you to say that to me. Sorry, but I love you. I'm trying to soften it right now. Search for wisdom. Romans 11.33, listen to what it says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Dude, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We live in an era of just fortune cookie wisdom, man. Twitter, 24 hours news media, Netflix, whatever, right? We're inundated with what James is describing here as earthly wisdom, and it literally permeates the church. If you don't believe me, just take note. Seriously, remember the sermon and take note of the kind of wisdom that just comes flooding out of your mouth during conversations you'll have this week because it can be shockingly earthy and unspiritual. And most of us would think way too far to say demonic. Easy, pal. Easy where you're going with that. You wanna know, you wanna know what keeps me awake at night as your pastor? Some of you have asked me this before, so here it is. I'm going I'm to lay it out there. The fear that we are biblically illiterate. Because <laughs> I feel like I got an answer for that one. Let me tell you, there's a little bit of a fear that even goes a little bit above that. If I could layer it, layer it on there, and, and it's this: not just biblically illiterate, but biblically ambivalent. We just don't even we just don't even care. Like other than this gathering, where you got to hear this dude or Chris Lawson or Scott just. You know, go, go, go. Like, man, it's just not something, it's not something that's being pursued. It's not something that's being just gone after. That is what keeps me awake at night. When you are tested in your marriage, when you are tested, in your relationships, and brothers and sisters, you are going to be tested. The only wisdom you have that is going to allow you to find a place of assurance and comfort and rest and hope is in a wisdom that comes from above. Because all the other wisdoms that you have as an option to your right, to your left, in front of you to reach for are demonic wisdoms. There, I said it. Because that's what James says. It doesn't really give us a lot of options. But when we search God's word, we get a treasure trove of knowledge that comes straight from the breath of God into the depths of our minds and hearts. It's a Thanksgiving feast of wisdom. What have we been doing the last four weeks? Well, we've been searching God's word to find out what God has to say about marriage. Marriage. And you know, the beauty of this search engine, which is God's word, is that God's word will will never be depleted. We will never come to the end of the amount of his wisdom and knowledge because his ways, it says, are unsearchable. It doesn't mean we can't discover anything. That's not what unsearchable means. It means that we can never find an end to the things that we will discover. God applies his wisdom in your heart as you search his heart. That happens when we open his word. That's what we have. So we need to ask. We need to pray. We need to search. We need to read. Thirdly, we need to seek wisdom from our church body. Tiffany Johnson, a woman writer, writing for Desiring God, she wrote this. She said, I am blind to my own blindness, and I need the perspective of others who are further along the road to Christ's likeness than I am. She said, we are prone to minimize our own faults and focus on others, Close-knit community lovingly urges us toward maturity. So when you spend your time with brothers and sisters that are running after Christ, what they do is they point you to godly wisdom as opposed to the kind of wisdom you're going to receive from the world. Well, what world? That's broad, Martin. Okay, the world of coworkers, the world of family, Uh uh-oh, the world of friends who will say things like this. God doesn't want you to be unhappy. Say things like, you deserve better than this. Say things like, you are entitled to have someone who meets your needs, don't settle. Say things like, chase your dreams, trust your heart, live in the moment, do what's right for you. Oh my gosh, it's like a bunch of like reject lines from like Hallmark, Cods and Nike commercials. I mean, all of that right there. It's earthly wisdom, but it is fuel that you are fed constantly. And fuel that we are fed constantly has the danger of conditioning us. So we gotta be warned. We gotta be warned about the kind of wisdom that is not from above, that is earthly. Paul writing to the Corinthians says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. So he's saying, I come to you, I help you, I. I nurture you. I communicate with you. I serve you by giving you wisdom. And he says, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, because they are doomed to pass away. Again, it's, it's just so clear. You know, there's, there's no gray area. So this is what I want to encourage you all in as Substance Church Worcester. There is a wealth of wisdom surrounding you right now. There is a wealth of it. And let me just say this, as I look around this room, I've experienced this wisdom. You have encouraged me. You have pointed me back to Christ so many times. Your wisdom has been deep. It has been discerning in my life. And it stemmed from the grace that you have received from godly living and grief-bearing so I am, I've been a beneficiary of your godly living, of the griefs that you have borne, as you have shared those things with me and encouraged me in them. Don't discount the wisdom you have to share or the wisdom you need to seek. And then lastly, and this is kind of its side, this is not an actual point, but it's a point. Recognize the foolishness of Wisdom the kind of wisdom we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. There's no category for what we're talking about for people who are not going after Christ. And even those of us who are running after Christ, this is a struggle because it's the spirit battling against our flesh, right? It's the it's it's flesh saying, man, I, that doesn't feel true. That doesn't feel right. If I pursue that kind of wisdom, it feels like I'm going to be the one that comes up short in life. That's our thought. That's our... Flesh battling against what our spirit is telling us is most true about God and what God says to us for how we are to live. So rightly applying God's word to your life in marriage, it runs counter to the voices in your ear and the voice in your mind. But it's the kind of wisdom that also has the power to shock a watching world. Do we not want people to say, why on earth would you do that? Why not give people just an a category, inexplicable category, right? Why not give the world that kind of category? Why not have the world ask a question like, why would you treat your husband, listen, why would you treat your husband so kindly? Won't he just walk all over you? Or, Why do you share so much with your wife? Don't you realize the more she knows, dude, the less freedom you're going to have? Or why would you not take that job position for increased pay? Won't the extra money be worth the hours? Earthly wisdom. Or you're really not going to move because of your church family? Like that's what's holding you back? Earthly wisdom. All of that? Earthly wisdom Wisdom will be foolishness to those not living lives of faithfulness. My question for you, does this wisdom sound foolish to you? Does it sound foolish to you? If you put a magnifying glass on your life and marriage today, on relationships today, what kind of wisdom would you see most applied? Because to properly redefine marriage according to God's word means reapplying layer after layer of godly wisdom so that the love And submission of Christ gets rightly applied to your spouse. So in closing, we have to plead with God for this. We have to plead with God to impart this wisdom to us that finds its origins in who? In Jesus Christ, who is, as Paul tells us, the wisdom of God. It's all displayed in Christ, who sacrificed for all so that we might have peace with God and a harvest of righteousness applied to us for salvation. The ultimate fruit of humility and self-denial is the cross. It's the salvation that we've gained from Christ. And you know what? And here's where I want to encourage you as we close. It doesn't happen in a day. So to walk away from a four-week marriage series where man, you're getting a lot of information, and there's so much grace in this because this is a process. This harvest of righteousness that comes from applied wisdom does not grow to maturity in a day. It takes days. It takes weeks, months, and years of purposeful living, of patient endurance, of intentional prayer, meaning there's hope for you who have marriages that are either on the brink of collapse or exist in some zombie state because nothing we've discussed the past four weeks has ever been repented of, pursued, and applied. Okay. But we have today, and we've been been given words of truth for which to begin a journey in the way that God has called us to apply his words to our life. There is nothing in your marriage that is beyond the hope of the gospel if the gospel has indeed set you free in Christ. There is a grace and there is a wisdom untapped and available if you humble yourself and admit your need. God will meet you in your weakness with the meekness of Christ and restore what has been damaged and rebuild what has been broken. Because God raised Christ, he can heal all those who have been raised with Christ. Let's pray. God, when we come to the end of passages such as these, we look into our core and we see the ways that we fall so short of this kind of wisdom from above that you have given us. So Lord, we come before you now and just plead with you, Lord, for grace and mercy. None of us have marriages that are in exactly the right place that you designed them to be. All of us are lacking wisdom in many areas, Lord. So we come to you as a people that wants to be honest about the place that we're in because the gospel has made it so we don't have to hide anything. The gospel makes it so that we can come honestly before the foot of the cross, before the throne of grace, and we can just say, God, help us. Help us in these things. Give us that meekness. Give us that humility. Give us that wisdom and discernment to see the cracks that need to be dealt with and then give us the courage lord to seek after those who can help us step through some of these things so in all of these things as we seek to redefine marriage according to your word we need to begin with a humility and with a courage lord and so we ask for that and we ask for a desire lord to love you more greatly and to devote ourselves more deeply and dearly to you and that our affections would rise and enlarge for Christ so that our marriage is the outflow of a love for God that you've given us through your son, Jesus. Thank you that this is possible, that the gospel makes all things possible, Lord, if we are willing and we are humble. And so, Lord, do that work in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.